0: But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americans, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our time. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we journey through time to understand the minds that shaped our world. In this episode, we turn our gaze to ancient Athens to walk alongside one of the most influential philosophers of all time, Socrates. We explore the life of a man who led not by sword, but by thought challenging the very foundations of Athenian society with this relentless questioning. From the bustling Agora to the hushed courtroom, we delve into the profound philosophical ventures that ignited minds and stirred the status quo. Witness the drama of Socrates' trial, a pivotal moment that tested the ideals of democracy and free speech. We examine the leadership qualities of a man who chose integrity over compromise, a thinker who shaped the course of Western philosophy, yet fell victim to the fears and politics of his time. Join us in the History in Motion podcast as we navigate the complex legacy of Socrates, exploring his life, his teachings, and his ultimate sacrifice as it continues to resonate through the ages. Today, we seek wisdom in the echoes of history.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the History in Motion podcast, where today we're throwing it back to ancient Greece. And we have the pleasure of introducing the first philosopher that we've studied on the History in Motion podcast, and that is the great Socrates of Athens in ancient Greece. So, you know, we're throwing it all the way back to a time when Greece is separated to warring city-states, science is not really even a thing, but there's these men who are starting to think a little bit differently, and that gets them into a little bit of trouble because when you don't follow the status quo, it doesn't typically work out well for you back in this time where you know we're looking at gods and very ritualistic practices so for socrates it doesn't end well you know spoiler alert right off the bat we're going to focus today on his life but also what brings him up to the great trial of socrates where he's condemned for convicted of condemning the youth and corrupting the youth and also basically being an atheist and not um you know praising the the standard greek gods and there's a really really cool story around him and trying to defend himself and how he even gets to that point. So I think it'll be an interesting one today as we kind of go through his life and see how it comes up to the trial. And then Ultimately, just kind of see why he would even be accused of something like this, and why his thoughts and teachings are are so well renowned and thought of today.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm surprised it took us this long to get to a philosopher um in in, in one of our episodes, but I'm very excited for this one. Uh, I think the more research I did, the more kind of the more some of like the contradictions and paradigms that came out of this were like you know the whole idea of like you know social uniformity versus intellectual progression. Right. Like with Socrates, I find that, you know, there's someone kind of challenging the status quo, thinking at the razor's edge of intellectual thought and philosophical thinking. But at the same time, right, you don't want to get too outside of the social uniformity that everyone's kind of looking to contain and uphold. And I think his story is quite unique in that sense.
1: I think so. And you look at this period in time, too. this is not a unified Greece. This is not a unified really anything at this point. So mm-hmm. you can tell the, the fear of non-uniformity can lead to betrayal and, you know, selling out to the enemy. Um, and it's your fellow Greeks at this point, too. It's the city of Sparta and Athens are always at each other's necks. And then eventually the Persians show up and that creates a whole nother Problem. So there's really a lack of stability in this region. And so you can kind of find this, you know, love for uniformity because it kind of keeps things stable. But of also course. you have this golden age of thought and philosophy all coming out of this area. And for a few specifically men. this is a great opportunity right to to try out these different ideas and to actually have time to think and not just fight in wars or try to survive because there is a lot of prosperity so i think it comes with the territory you're trying to find this stability but as a consequence you've created all this prosperity for your people and then that's going to trickle into people are going to start thinking a little bit different and asking some questions that maybe as a leader you're not too happy with but again it comes with the territory you want to be prosperous you're going to have this sort of knowledge flowing through your society whether you like it or not It's
0: it's an interesting reality right like when you're working all day every day and laboring and you know tilling the fields you don't really have the time to think about the big questions about you know why are we here what are we doing this it it is in in many sense philosophy is a bit of a luxury um to be able to kind of sit back and think about these big broad questions and i think you know Um, it really gets to the heart, or at least like an underpinning of of some of the resources and the growth of financial and, you know, just kind of the standard of living that's happening at this point in time where Socrates is.
1: For sure. It's like you can't be a hunter and come back and be like, I don't have any food for the family because I went for a walk and started thinking about why the trees are green and the sky is blue and and tried to figure all of that out. So you definitely have to be born into a society where A, you're allowed to have these thoughts and it's not condemned immediately, but also you need Good to, cow, like you yeah. said, you have to be able to have everything that you need to survive and have, you know, spare time really, which is kind of interesting now that we talk about it, like spare time is. A much more modern concept than it, is, than right? it really yeah. was back yeah. then.
0: Yeah. And I think this is one of the, the things that's so interesting about like philosophy in and of itself, because it really is just an exercise and kind of pondering and doing the mental gymnastics to, you know, find some sort of rational answer for, you know, why the universe exists the way it does, you know, why do we operate the way we do? And I think this is probably a, a great kind of pivot point to kind of introduce not just Socrates because, you know, like philosophically speaking, this episode is more of like an intellectual history lesson, almost, in, in a way. You know, Our focus is Socrates and, you know, I think most people in the Western world who are in any way, shape or form kind of familiar with philosophy and how it's kind of taught in modern education, Socrates is, you know, considered the father of... Of, of western philosophy but the reality is there were philosophers before him <laughs> the pre-socratics as they're kind of lumped all together they're known primarily for their attempts to kind of understand the universe and seek rational explanations for natural phenomenon so essentially you see this kind of divergence or moving away from mythological interpretation I think it's important, you know, something to keep in mind. Essentially, many of them were completely and totally wrong about their assumptions or rational understandings. And I think that's fine. You know, like most things in philosophy or, you know, scientific exploration, they laid a foundation or at least gave an initial attempt to provide an answer to questions that most people weren't concerned with and provided a starting point for other philosophers. And if we kind of look at pre-Socratic thinking as a whole, I think some of the key characteristics that I came away with when I was uh, just doing my research. research, like there's kind of some couple of big buckets. So there's this idea of natural philosophy. So they focused heavily on understanding uh, the cosmos, natural phenomenon, you know, the underlying principles of the universe, they're kind of considered the first scientists in Western history for their efforts to explain the natural world in terms of, you know, natural laws rather than supernatural causes. And I think that's a very, very powerful and important shift to not just use this kind of God of the gaps analysis, which is if we don't understand it, you know, the gods are responsible for it. There's this real shift in trying to Use our, you know, human faculties to make sense of the world around us.
1: It's just that general human curiosity, right? Exactly. I think is what you're saying, right? So yeah. even in this piece, like you were saying, it's a, its almost a substitute for science because science as a concept doesn't really come around until maybe Galileo in the 14th, 15th century. So this piece of, yeah, what, why is the world the way it is? It kind of leaks into this almost scientific method in a sense, without it properly being defined. But exactly. I love the fact that it's just it's curiosity of why do yep. things work the way they do and these, whenever we see a society with this level of curiosity, there's always some sort of advancement, whether it's technologically, whether it's from a political standpoint. And, you know, we see the peaks and valleys throughout um, history where people are told not to think and don't question anything. And we kind of see just a plateau of human civilization. But then when we look at the Greeks, this is where we see a huge uptick in, like, we see the invention of democracy and all of these things coming out of this type of intellectual curiosity that kind of springboards things forward. But I find it interesting that it kind of covers so many bases and science is just such a core part of it where today we don't really think of scientific philosophy as much as probably we did or maybe even at all because Mm -hmm. science is science. We have a proper scientific method for it and we just, we go test stuff and we, we do what we need to do from a scientific perspective. But for some of the things we don't know as much about, like maybe some human behavior or how the brain works, it starts to leak back into Philosophy a little bit, so I almost kind of see it as this substitute for things we can't explain or maybe can never explain, which I think is kind of interesting because it it kind of is that healthy balance between what can we explain, what can we test versus hey, what do we think the idea is, and, and that's when you get. When you have the classic, you think of Socrates and all these old guys with big beards arguing about what the answer should be. And I think it's just a great picture of kind of what what this time really encompasses.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed it, Paul. This was kind of my takeaway as well. You know, you know, we talked about natural philosophy quickly, but you also see this kind of obsession with uh, cosmology and metaphysics. So again, this interest in understanding not just the origins, but the structures of the universe, this whole idea of like, what are the fundamental substances of reality? What are we made out of? You know, now we know, like, atoms, neurons, protons, electrons, but, you know, you can see some of these, like, early scientific thought, and I'm sure, you know, that word we're kind of placing, we're projecting backwards, but, you know, you can definitely see elements of that. Um, There's also, you know, a bit of ethical and political philosophy. I think, to a lesser extent, Socratic thought, you know, with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, this definitely, you know, was something that springboarded into a much larger um, kind of school of thought, but the pre-Socratics were also kind of concerned with ethical, political thought, They often pondered about the nature of justice and ideal society. Um, But from my perspective, and to your point, Paul, it seems like a lot of it was really focused on natural philosophy, metaphysics, trying to understand what the world and the universe is made out of. And I have a quick list here of some of like some notable pre-Socratic philosophers and some of the big, you know, contributions that they did make during their time the big one uh, pythagoras i think we all have heard of pythagoras willingly or unwillingly you know his contributions for mathematics Uh, he had significant metaphysical theories particularly regarding numbers and there's a bit of a mystical element here in terms of their significance in the cosmos um i don't know if you went into this at all paul but pythagoras there's a there's a group of historians who sometimes label pythagoras as a bit of a cult leader um, because he had a bit of a commune there were certain ceremonial and ritualistic aspects of how they kind of mysticized numbers and how they fit into um you know into society at the time it is it, it very interesting i i you know it's definitely something we weren't taught in math class <laughs> i assume when we talked about the Pythag- pythagorean theorem
1: yeah there's always this element of that right Of you have this person who's just super smart and trying to push forward his ideology it always gets culty in some capacity i think we even see it with socrates Natural. too right yeah. it's yeah yeah it's just the way it's it's par for the course, I think. And again, it's that balance of, yes, you need followers, but you don't need, you know, worshippers, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think it's a a common thread we'll kind of see as we go through. But yes, I don't think that was lesson one when we were learning the Pythagorean Theorem of this cult leader created this really great method that we still use today. But
0: I um, probably would have paid attention if they led the call later <laughs> thing but exactly so again I think it goes to the point that some, some of the things that were discussed or used or like came up and were kind of documented and codified even in this era like in, the, in ancient times is still relevant today and still used and I think there's a couple of these kind of standouts that really struck a chord with me when I was doing um, some of this pre-Socratic research so there's a guy named Democritus so he's actually best known for his atomic theory of the universe he proposed that everything was Is composed of indivisible and indestructible atoms, which is pretty wild to me to think that, you know, this person without any other scientific evidence or proof or tools or equipment, just through sheer like rational thinking and reasoning going on what his predecessors may have taught, was able to kind of come up with this theory that is pretty close to what we know today. It's
1: It's, it's pretty remarkable. It's unbelievable how like to get down to that level, like you hear the conversations around, oh, the four elements, you know, earth, wind. Fire, air, and that's how everything's made up, and and that would make sense for someone back then as you kind of observing the natural world. But take it a step further and say, actually, all four of those things are made up of the same building blocks, just rearranged in different ways. Crazy. It's pretty brilliant, and yeah, I would love to have you know get inside his head and really understand how he came to that thought. Because was it more just like, yeah, that that just makes sense, and that's the way he's always thought, or did he go in and go through some sort of really deep thought process to to come to that? But mm-hmm. Either it's just a really lucky guess or absolute brilliance. I I like to think it's brilliance because I think that just makes the story a little bit more interesting. But not a bad thing to come up with.
0: No, it's 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 incredible. Like it actually was amazing to hear that because I think when we think about like you know ancient history, ancient philosophy, because this is ancient, you know, we 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 quickly kind of dismiss it because we don't think they're able to come to the conclusions or rationales that we do. But you know, like I I think it just goes to the the depth and breadth that that some of these thinkers were able to. Kind of accomplish and the conclusions they were able to make that are so close to a fundamental truth that they would probably never they would never know was actually accurate enough which is kind of sad in a way but i think the point that i'm trying to make is that philosophy did not start with socrates you know there were many influential thinkers before him and they kind of set the stage for the de- for the broader development of of western philosophy that would really kind of you know expand and leapfrog with socrates and his followers and kind of what came post socratic thinking because i think these inquiries and the you know the nature of reality, the focus on rational explanations, exploring ethical and political themes—they essentially provided that springboard for Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then you know subsequent philosophical, philosophical traditions. So I think again, the big takeaway here is that they were accurate about some stuff. Much of it was wrong, uh, but it's a uh, it it does represent a massive shift from mythological thinking to rational explanations of the world, which really you know to your point that you just made, Paul, is the beginning of kind of this scientific thought in Western culture.
1: Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, too, just saying this is not where it starts. I think, as we described, philosophy is really just being curious and thinking in a different way and you know, Socrates was definitely not the first person to ever think outside the box. That's probably been happening since humans were able to think. But the main difference here is philosophy is now mainstream. We know people's names, people, again, worship them for lack of a better term in some capacity during their lifetime, where before that, it was more to the fringes of society where people would start to think about these ideas. And, you know, death was most likely the answer for thinking these things. But to be able to walk down the street and have intellectual debates with anybody you want and that's kind of celebrated to an extent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's a brand new concept that kind of springboards, you know, Greece and then we see the Romans almost having this love for ancient Greece and it comes a lot from this free inquiry and thinking about things in a different way and every time we kind of see that throughout society, we take a step forward and I think it does start with the Greeks.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I think I think that really does speak to like if we, you know, kind of pivot back to thinking about Socrates. You know, if we look at his lifetime I also think it speaks a lot to the kind of the intellectual landscape of Greece, particularly in Athens and this kind of transformation that's going on. And the term I kept coming across, which I wasn't familiar with at the time, uh, was kind of this golden age of Athens, which is, you know, um, I guess it runs from like 480 to 404 BC. It's... A bit of a defining period. In in Greece, it's characterized by these kind of, you know, unparalleled achievements in culture, art, philosophy, and politics. Under, you know, like notable leadership from Pericles, Athens becomes kind of this epicenter of, of Greek civilization. It embodies the ideals of democracy where, you know, free Athenian men are able to participate and governance i think you also have kind of uh like the architectural you know transformation that's happening with the parthenon which is this kind of you know symbol of athenian artistic and architectural prowess and genius. i guess like in terms of like philosophy it, it, it almost sounds like a bit of an enlightenment right like i don't like using that word very often but there seems to be this element of kind of intellectual growth and prosperity that's underpinned by this more um you know civil kind of growth as well
1: yeah. This, it really is a type of enlightenment. I think that is the right term for it. I know the enlightenment is its own thing, but it is mm-hmm. in a sense, this ex- open expression and, and really advancement of human society. And the crazy thing is, is there's not that many people really living in Athens at this time. So from what I was looking at there's around 250,000 people in Athens, but only about 35,000 of them are men of you know civic who have civic rights. So not slaves, native born Athenians, um, so there's only really about thirty-five thousand men who are really able to drive this this change, which is is not a lot of people. So I think, you know, as we start to look at Athenian society, you see this this tradition start to come into place too, where, you know, the value of education is very, very high. Um, the ability to converse with your fellow man is very very important but there's also a strong military tradition as well so you kind of have the three things that you need for a society to function in this time like if you don't have a strong military tradition you're going to get eaten up by your neighbors very very quickly but if you don't have the free inquiry you just kind of become a a warring state that's just raiding and and not really trying to do anything I guess of of value just you know hey we're good at war so that's what we're going to do and you kind of see the Athenians have the ability to do all three of those things um and kind of keep the Spartans at bay for the most part um through their strong naval activities and the other thing i thought was interesting was you know why is why is this time period a do we know so much about it but also what gives it the ability to grow as quickly as it as it does i think one of the big things is the literacy rate is growing which is important but also what what the greek language has become at this time is quite advanced for languages so when we look at the egyptians and they're using hieroglyphics and different symbols. We see some more simplistic languages um, throughout the world that are written down. But at this time with Greece, like you have the full Greek alphabet's been created. You have vowels and words, for example, is a huge thing. So now this ability to convey thought in a different way orally is obviously very, very important. But now you can start to write and you can share that knowledge with other people and it can get passed down. So I think that's where I I think is the number one reason probably why we know so much about this time period is they're able to convey their ideas in in a way that, most other societies can't at this point in time and even to that point we have you know you'll see a typical Athenian family will have children they'll usually have a slave who's literate as well and their job is to be the teacher to their children to make sure that they understand you know the typical um, things that an Athenian would learn but also to be able to read and write so this literacy rate is continuing to increase and I think it it goes without saying that you know literacy at in 400 BC is you know in the single percentages worldwide this is a very rare thing so to have a society where everybody's able able to read and write is probably one of those main reasons why we're able to springboard forward and have some of these ideas that you don't really see anywhere else in the world
0: i think yeah i think there's so much there paul like you know i think there's things that stand out to me and i think it kind of goes back to the initial point that we kind of kicked off the episode with is that there's got to be a lot going on and a lot going on well <laughs> for a group of or like you know for your massive population to be able to dedicate time to these kind of new oral and written traditions that are happening around Around you, um, and I think Socrates kind of personifies that to a certain degree, right? Um, he is very much, you know, able to develop his Socratic method, his his way of and style of thinking, because he is able to do so in an environment that's kind of conducive to it. And if you look at just, you know, the three things that stand out to me about Socrates is that obviously philosophical inquiry, you know, that's why we're talking about him. He kind of personified this spirit of intellectual exploration that kind of cuts across Athenian society. Uh, Um, You know, I think he's notoriously famous for engaging in public debates in the marketplace and kind of questioning conventional beliefs and wisdom. You know, there's this, again, the focus of like on ethics and virtue. You know, he believed that knowledge was key to virtue and that no one does wrong willfully but out of ignorance, which I think is such a lovely idea. I don't know. I, I think that's such a such a modern thing, you know, th- that to be able to see that most people just just don't know. And that's why they may act that the way they do. And I think that kind of perspective shifted the focus of philosophy from like, kind of like the natural world, which we saw with the pre-Socratic thinkers, to human issues of like morality and the nature of human character.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you look at this time period, right? Survival is the number one thing for a lot of people. So I think it is a very, very apt way of looking at it of people don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. Like, we don't know about evolution and, you know, the need (laughs) to survive and pass on your genes and that kind of stuff. And so when people aren't able to step away from just their biological instincts of stay alive and and pass on your genes. Like it's it's essentially a level of ignorance where you're just going to be acting on those things all the time. So I think for, for, sorry, for Socrates to be able to take a step back and say, you know, okay, this person's murdering somebody or stealing their food. They're not doing it because they're necessarily a bad person. They're just doing it because they don't understand why they're doing it. And again, it's now we're getting into like, he's using this idea of just observation to explain very fundamental psychological yeah. and biological processes, yeah. which I think is what makes all of this so beautiful. Is these are just ideas that now we need to go not essentially prove, but work onto a different level and expand them out, and then eventually, two thousand years later, Charles Darwin's able to figure out, you know, exactly. the exact root cause of what Socrates yeah. was saying, which I think is just kind of crazy that everything just starts with an idea, and eventually we get to a, you know a scientific theory based around just a simple idea. Yeah, we get as close
0: as we can to actually being able to empirically point to and prove something with like a definitive answer right? And I think that that's some of the most powerful stuff about like philosophy in this era that kind of I find so captivating, because you see so many of these fundamental truths just kind of laid out. And it's just through, you know, with with Socrates, obviously, it's like the Socratic math method, which is, you know, well, we won't, we're not a philosophy podcast. So we won't get into like the nitty gritty details of the Socratic method. But essentially, you know, it's a form of like cooperative argumentative dialogue. And, you know, I love the idea of it. I wish more people did it. But essentially, it stimulates kind of critical thinking to draw out ideas and underlying presuppositions. so essentially you're just going to ask a series of questions to challenge assumptions and reveal the extent of one's knowledge to whether someone can actually definitively know something it's a question answer format it inquires critical thinking and really you know if done well it will reveal the contradictions of the person you are you know having this argumentative dialogue
1: I'm very clearly seeing the pros and cons to this from, you know, an engineering perspective, for example, something that engineers do is we do something called first principles, break everything down, ask the questions and get to the true root cause so you can solve it. And that works lovely when you're trying to solve a mechanical problem or an electrical problem. The other side is you know, don't talk religion and politics at the dinner table and that kind of thing. Yeah. And you just keep, you're trying to break someone down to open up, to expose their lack of understanding over an idea. Nobody wants that to happen to them. Nobody wants to, to be exposed as not really fully understanding something. They want a simple way of looking at the world and now you're trying to break them down and we'll get into, you know, Socrates going around and sure he's having these great intellectual debates with other intellectuals and they're really challenging each other. And there's some great things that come out of it. But, you know, the the local butcher who's just cutting his meat doesn't want to be berated by Socrates on how he doesn't know the true meaning of whatever he's working on or whatever the topic of the day is. And so you can start to see this this kind of piece where people are like, oh, no, here comes Socrates again. He's going to he's going to start talking versus some people <laughs> are like, oh, great, here's Socrates. We're going to have a great conversation and learn a ton. So. It's definitely a balancing act with him, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's that weird kind of when I mean, you really break it down of you know know your time, know your place, know your audience, and it can work really well, but it can also lead to some really upset people.
0: I think in a perfect world where people have like intellectual humility and are willing to own their shortcomings, it's great. But people get very defensive, and I, so I found an example. I wanted to provide an example to our listeners uh, to kind of make it a little bit more real. So this is actually a dialogue from Plato. Um, so Plato Plato was uh, Socrates' most famous students. This is written uh, posthumously. So in this dialogue, which is essentially this kind of discussion-style narrative that's very popular among philosophers, um, Plato writes about Socrates, who encounters uh, Euthyro, a religious expert outside the court, and engages him in a discussion about the nature of piety. Okay, A word that's not used very often, and I think even in the era of Socrates, Uh, of Socrates, a word that is increasingly difficult to pin down. And this is the point that the conversation goes. So Socrates is about to be tried for impiety. And Euthyro claims to understand what piety is. And he is prosecuting his uh, own father for a murder and a decision he believes is pious. So Socrates asks him to define piety. He responds that piety is what he is doing, prosecuting wrongdoers, which includes his father. So you can see he's kind of using his own definition here. It's very loose. So further inquiry, Socrates, finds this definition, as he would, very unsatisfactory and asks him to provide a more general definition, not just an example. Uh, He says that piety is what is dear to the gods. So through a series of questions, Socrates leads him to realize that since the gods often quarrel among themselves, that what is dear to one god may not be dear to another, and that therefore his definition could lead to many contradictions. Essentially, he begins to attempt to refine his definition, but so- Socrates' persistent questioning exposes further problems and inconsistencies, and the dialogue ultimately ends without a clear definition of piety, but with a deeper understanding of the complexity of the concept. So again, it's just, again, to your, I think to your point, Paul, it's like, what are first principles? Can we get to a foundational level of agreement and, 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 and rationality that we can use to build upon.
1: I like that story too, because it it shows why like why democracy flourishes so much in Athens because of this type of ability to just break down ideas and ask the right types of questions. So you can have these types of debates. And in this case, it's a very important legal matter, like someone's life is on the line here, someone potentially is on trial for their life. And th- the reasoning that comes in is essentially a weak argument, according to Socrates, and he's able to, you know, sure, they don't get to an answer, but now it's getting the people thinking of, okay, is this is this how we should be conducting our legal system based on definitions of piety that, yeah. you know, don't really, you know, we look at today and go, okay, that doesn't make any sense at all. And then I also kind of like the piece on how the gods are always fighting, and I think that's just a very very interesting part of ancient Greece is, you know, it's very different than maybe the people who grown up in like a Western Christian culture, where you have one God who's all good, knows everything and can do no wrong. Where the Greeks, they look at their gods and go, oh yeah, they're very human. They make a lot yeah. of mistakes. Yeah. They're very yeah, yeah. jealous. They don't like each other a lot of the time. Yeah. So in Socrates, is I think it's a really great argument to make when he's saying, yeah, the gods fight all the time. Why can't we, we argue sometimes and, and try to figure things out in different ways? So yeah, I, I like that. That part as well, because I think it just kind of sums up this time period in a little bit, maybe quite quite well, just on the basis of what the religious elements are, because obviously they're very, very important. But then also that you're able to even have that type of conversation, but then also that someone's able to just accuse somebody of something and then point to piety and say, yeah, that's the reason. And let's have a debate for this person's life, which is, you know maybe a a bit of a flaw in their in their justice system at this time
0: well and i think something even holds true today right like think about as you were speaking i'm thinking about the word or concept of justice like i'm sure there's a webster's definition of justice but as a concept you ask 10 people to define justice you're going to get you know 10 maybe somewhat different ideas of what that actually looks like in a meaningful way and i think you know at its core much of what we talk about in democracy these are very complex concepts that you know we we use these words you know regularly but to actually be able to fully understand the breadth and depth and complexity of such concepts is where you know i think like the socratic method is so interesting because it really it does i think it thrives when people can you know recognize one's own ignorance as i think socrates really pushed for it really emphasizes the pursuit of truth you know regardless of all else and and, and it's still this kind of very fundamentally used tool in like education, right, to foster like critical thinking and dialogue, to be able to question and analyze, and be able to go get to a, a basic understanding of something like this.
1: Definitely, and I think this might be a good point to pivot into, you know, Athenian democracy a little bit, just as you kind yeah, of introduced perfect. it there. And, and why, you know, I think it's a great segue into why the Socratic method is so important at this time, and it and it really kind of is byproducts, but also a source of this Athenian um, democratic process. So again, democracy is being invented for the first time here. This is a world where kings and lords and emperors or whatever you want to call it, noble birth is the most important thing. What's running through your blood is the most important thing. But the Athenians see it a bit differently. They don't um, conform to that kind of world. They have an assembly, which was uh, basically a central institution of their democracy, all citizens. So when we say citizens, men who are born in Athens, who are not slaves and who have done some sort of military service, have the ability to be part of the Athenian democratic process. So all citizens had the right to attend meetings, which were held about 40 times a year on um, a specific hill that was in Athens. The assembly, they decided on laws, decrees, policies, really everything you would see from a modern democracy. They also had the judicial part of of um athens as well so you know how are we going to conduct trials um how are we going to elect officials as well and then also are we going to declare war or are we not going to declare war so really think of u.s congress british or canadian house of commons like it's just this assembly of people who are starting to come together to make decisions on things the council was um, another part of, of the democratic process and it was chosen by essentially drawing straws or drawing drawing something <laughs> as, as a random process similar to how we saw it in florence um, when we talked about Lorenzo de' Medici and Machiavelli, um, and they essentially prepared the agenda for the assembly. So their members served for, for one year and were responsible for the day-to-day administration of the city-state. You know, they'd manage things like finances, uh, infrastructure, all the state activities That needed to happen and some people are actually paid for their services which i thought was kind of interesting we typically see when we talk about early democracies it's a more of a volunteer sort of thing where it's just something that you want to be involved in because it's kind of your your civic duty but one of the things the athenians realized is if you're a very poor citizen you don't have time to be going to these assemblies or working on administrative processes so they actually provided some pay to these people so you could be the lowest of the low in Athens but you had the ability to serve as in the assembly or serve in this council so you could take part in the democratic process because it was your right as an Athenian citizen with a few caveats but you know it wasn't just for the rich and um, powerful It was really for everybody, at least so the idea goes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think that that's so interesting, right? Like, well, when the comparison between like Venice or, or sorry, Florence and, you know, what we're talking about today, I like, it's always those kind of silver linings that cut across, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries is always so, so cool to see how things are implemented. But to see the formation of democracy and what it would lead to today, right? Like it is it's one of those things that just kind of boggles the mind.
1: And it disappears right for so long until the yeah. Renaissance really, and then it yeah, comes yeah, back and then yeah. it kind of dips away and then it comes yeah. comes back. But our man of the hour Socrates did not like any of this. He really oh. disliked democracy and you'd be thinking for someone who loves this free inquiry and loves to be able to have these open debates, you would think he'd want some sort of democracy. He'd want everybody to be able to stand up, plead their case, and make the best decision. But he had this belief that voting was a skill. It wasn't something that you could just give to anybody. You needed to be taught how to think and how to process uh, certain types of um, questions. And then you should have the ability to vote. So he wanted to heavily restrict who was allowed to make those types of decisions. And for him, it was essentially a mob rule sort of thing that he was worried about of people don't know enough about a concept. Everyone gets riled up, everyone votes for something, but they're actually not trained in the right way to think through these problems deeply like he is or any of the people that he teaches. And so he's kind of like, well, that's just the way for mob rule to take over. We're not actually going to get anything done. And so he has this kind of analogy where he's, asked, he's in a debate with someone about democracy and he says, okay, you'd want to travel on a ship. And he says, who would you like to captain that ship? And the person responds, well, I would want the most qualified, most experienced um, sailor captain of a ship that you can find. And he goes, great. So why do you say that any old person can run a country? Why can't we just vote somebody in? He goes, you need to pick the best person who's, um, trained in the best way possible to be able to run a country. And he basically says, by doing just voting like this, if we're not able to vote in a way where we understand the objective strengths and weaknesses of a person, or you don't have the ability to think through those processes, we're going to pick the wrong person and it's not going to work out. And he has this fear of demagoguery where the masses are swept away by this smooth talker who uses their political skill to, you know, woo the masses and takes control. And he has another analogy, which is great, where he compares a doctor to a person who sells sweets and candies and lovely things that you would want to. In the The seller would come up and say, "I have all these wonderful things that taste great, and you're going to love them." And then the doc he goes to the doctor. What are your What are you selling? And the doctor goes, "Well, I'm saying don't do any of those things because it's actually not good for your health. But um, I, even though it gives you short term pleasure, but then also the doctor is going to give you." You know, medicine, and maybe take you through in painful procedures, and that's his selling point. In the long run, it's good for you, but in the short term, that kind of indulgence for the sweets and the sugar and all of those sort of things are so so important. And you know, as humans, we just we'll, we'll jump at those short term games all the time. And Socrates sees this, and he says, "There's a, a really great opportunity for someone to sell things that are great in the short term, and then we see this kind of hero slash mini god worship of these types of people, and then we essentially have you know king." for lack of a better term, who's you know, only in power because of their ability to, to talk and be politically savvy, but not actually on their objective skills. So he sees it as, you know, hey, democracy doesn't work for that purpose which I don't think is maybe the the most wrong thing to look at it. It's obviously a balancing act, but I think it's a, it's a very, very good understanding of where democracy can go wrong. If we look at democracy across the world today, there's a lot of, yeah, there's some smooth talkers out there who knows how to get their way into power. It's not always the smartest person who understands what they need to do to make their country great. So I think it's a great kind of overview of democracy then, but also very, very good description of where it is today.
0: What an incredibly accurate analysis of the potential shortcomings of democracy there's there's a quote i don't remember where i heard it but it kind of stuck with me it's about democracy it's from a movie um someone says democracy could be two wolves and a sheep voting on who to eat for dinner I love that. Right. And I think, like, while you were speaking, Paul, you know, I, I think for our listeners, it's probably very hard to not see some of those shortcomings in the modern era. Some of the things that he was fearful of, that short sightedness, you know, we think in four year cycles here. In, in the Great White North, and you know, like it makes sense. It totally checks out. I'm not saying it's a totally flawed system, but I'm I, I can see his analysis and the skills that he's kind of talking about of being a like a fully educated citizen to be able to make a vote that's meaningful for long term progress. I think it's it's great analysis. I, yeah,
1: yeah, he's he is able to really break these things down, and I think he has a very good understanding of how human beings are able to process complex ideas. And he understands, I think, rightfully, most of us, including the two of us, don't really know how to break down most concepts, especially when it's military or deep political issues. And again, that's why you don't talk politics at the dinner table, because everybody's going to have such convictions about things. And to be able to break it, to break down every single idea and really understand it that's your full-time job really and that's probably why you you have full time politicians because we think well we hope that's their, their job right so <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a, just a great overview. And I think it's one of those things where you can see very, very clearly why it disappears so fast, because you can have someone elected and then just take over and kind of make themselves an emperor or a king exactly. because of this kind of demagoguery that we see. And we see it all over the world. until really almost the modern era where democracies are actually you know quite stable. So yeah, he's able to point those things out. And I think he's right and it really just takes some time for you know things to be stable and you know the enlightenment to come forward and all of these sort of things and then also people to be able to see how kings and queens and ruling based on bloodline has some disastrous consequences for a lot of people it kind of swings things back in into this direction and thankfully i think for all of us democracy is stuck around and um you know socrates maybe didn't have his his choice of things but that's just sure. the, way the way the world works
0: yeah it's interesting when i was thinking through this uh, last couple of days there seems to be this kind of like kind of paradox that exists with socrates and um you know um greece at this point in time especially with his analysis right like you have a society that is increasingly democratic that's open about discussion intellectual thought it's burgeoning it's flourishing but here comes this guy who is you know like really on the fringes of of his 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 discourse he's you know really pushing it with how you know, analytical and critically is of of some of these potential systems and institutions and some of the weak points that many people may be aware of. But don't necessarily want to say out loud and here he is you know in the ultimate search of truth is willing to not only say them out loud but continually say them to be able to kind of raise awareness about it because in his mind you know this seems like the the virtuous thing to do
1: yeah it comes down to that you know again what is his moral obligation to do these things i guess the virtuous thing as you were saying yep and you know it's going to get him into some trouble though that's the that's the the downside of all of this is you know especially in a time where you know free expression is not uh, you know written right into into a constitution um yeah. you know it gets him into some trouble but i think real quick we haven't really jumped into his life at all i think we should do that real quick <laughs> And this is what happens with us. We get, we start talking about, uh, the, the grander things. But again, his bio's not really that interesting. I think that was one thing when I started reading it, I was like, yeah, he's just kind of a guy and he just shows up and his ideas and how he conducts himself are interesting. And then obviously his trial is interesting. So real quick, we'll just kind of power through his, uh, his early life, which. Is very typical for an Athenian male at this time. So he's born to a stone worker and a midwife who lived in the suburbs of Athens. And so, as we said before, this is a great start. He's not born into poverty. He's not born into vast amounts of wealth, but he's living comfortably. Um, he's born in Athens, so he's got that citizenship. He's a male, and he's from a family that's got some influence and can provide him an education. So he's really set. From birth, Decent at least hand. at that point. Yeah. Decent hand, to be the dead. hand, is good. Yeah, Decent. it's not uh, it's not a royal flush that he's been dealt uh, right away, but it's it's something he can work with. And, you know, he follows a typical education of a typical Athenian. He learns um, laws and customs of Athens, you know, basic skills of reading and writing. He even received extra lessons in various fields such as athletics, poetry, music. So just really trying to be an all around um, educated person. And we just kind of, the next kind of things we learn about Socrates is it's just kind of, yeah, he was married twice, he had three kids. He did some military service in one of the wars with Sparta, and we just don't really know about a lot about his life. But what we do know comes from people writing about him. It's all second sources. Like he never wrote an autobiography or anything, or wrote anything down at all. Never even his ideas he didn't write down. That's a great point. All the stuff we really know comes from Plato, who is his pupil, and Plato would start documenting a lot of these stuffs, and another historian um, who is his pupil would start to write down a lot of these things. So we're getting a lot of these things really secondhand, but really the next thing we know is... Just how he was seen amongst his fellow Athenians. So he was known for being incredibly ugly with like a really large kind of pig nose, had really bulging eyes, kind of a bigger guy with a big belly. He neglected personal hygiene, didn't like to bathe, walked barefoot. He had one coat. That he wore and just wore it all the time he also was very into limiting this, the pleasures of life so food sex and other things like that you know, he didn't give them up altogether but really tried to you know i think in his eyes it was a way of kind of corrupting the mind a little bit of going after these pleasures of if i can minimize this i'm going to have more time to have a, a clear mind and think he was known for being attracted to to young men, really young boys at this point. So before everyone goes, oh my god, that's awful, which modern in the modern day absolutely is. Um, that was a very common and accepted practice um, in Greece, where you know men would would be with men and women, especially um, older men with younger with younger men um or younger boys in some situations um which is kind of a weird commonly accepted practice in greece and even in, when we move into like the roman period as well um but Plato describes that he was you know he had a passion for young men but he resisted because he was interested in educating their souls That that's what he was truly interested in so i'm sure plato's doing socrates a few favors there and kind of little
0: pr bus yeah, yeah exactly
1: <laughs> you know he, he didn't have a pr department but he had a pupil who was who thought very fondly of him and like we talked about he was known for walking the market. Challenging a variety of people on many different things and lengthy debates, which obviously didn't really work out well for him in a variety of <laughs> ways. You know, like we said, people would just feel foolish and he would actually like try to embarrass people as he was speaking to them. So, you know, nobody wants to be embarrassed, let alone in public around your peers or you know, while you're running your business, you're chopping up some meat or you're trying to sell whatever or you're working as a blacksmith. And Socrates is coming in and telling you, you don't really know the true meaning of of your craft or something like that around <laughs> people like it's it's interesting. <laughs> But look, I just want to make my swords, I just want to make my shoes, I just want to make whatever I'm making and, and get on with yeah. my day. And there's a lot of people who are like that. So he definitely was on the uh the negative side of a lot of people and um, obviously gets him in trouble um at near the end at the end of his life.
0: It's so funny cuz like so much of what you're saying is still so relevant today, right? It's like I just want to go do my work and I want to come home and I don't want to think about these things. And there's always that one guy who's like, "No, no, let's take this deeper." Yeah. And Socrates, everyone knows the Socrates.
1: They do yeah it's the guy who's like yeah did you see what you know Trudeau or Biden or somebody said last night And you're like no and I don't care I just want to do my day and get moving and I don't care about it yeah or hey have we really thought about truly what's the meaning of behind what we're doing it's like yeah maybe I can think about that one day but today is you know I want to get to five o'clock I want to get home I want to I want to pour a glass of wine and enjoy my exactly. shows like it's yeah. it's the simplicity of life that I think Socrates doesn't really get mainly because he probably does live quite a comfortable life and you know you're in Greece like you're in paradise really at this point so yeah um, you know he probably doesn't see some of the some of those hardships but it does catch up with him. so um, in 30 in 399 BC Socrates was formally accused of corrupting the minds of the youth of Athens and worshiping false gods and failing to worship the gods of Athens. So one of the big flaws I see in kind of Athenian democracy in their legal system was any person can charge anybody of anything. So think about, you know, you, you just don't like somebody or you had a bad day. You can come up with trumped up charges and just say, hey, this person did this. And they're like, all right, well, we have to take this somewhat seriously. You know, not like in our society where the police have to go through a process. You have to get a judge involved as a public prosecutor who has to have enough evidence to actually go and convict somebody or charge them with a crime so there's a lot of vendettas that are happening here where someone doesn't like somebody for whatever reason they throw them up against charges and then they try to rile everybody up to be able to vote in the in the negative for somebody and and really this is where i think socrates could see the dangers of their democratic system where not only can you get somebody riled up to pick a leader but you can get people riled up around this type of um legal system where, you know, maybe you need a scapegoat for something. Maybe you need a head to roll because other things are going on. And it just kind of, you know, it's the scapegoat process, right? Of we can put all our problems on one person and pretend it's over with actually solving the problem. And for for Socrates, it's a really tricky time because the Athenian Spartan relationship is really not at a great point. And I I think shortly after his death, the Spartans actually um, invade Athens. So there's this part of, yeah, things aren't good. There's some questioning about what's going on, and when the accusations are brought forward by a poet of all people named uh, Melitus, he brings these accusations against Socrates, and, and then he's up for trial. So it it is a bit odd. This is not coming from you know the council got together and really deliberated and thought about this. It's you know, he was brought forward. Obviously, the council has to to take those those allegations in and decide what to do. But it wasn't like it was drawn from a internal legal process that's trying to, you know, prosecute criminals and things like that. So this was brought by just a regular public citizen. You
0: know, it's an interesting kind of system to be for anyone to be able to charge or p- place charges against anyone at any time. You know, what a slippery slope. And the administrative and like operational cost of that, I imagine would be like immense from just a bureaucracy perspective because you got, you'd have to be able to like how would you manage that if anyone is like i could then sue you at any time paul for anything and you could then sue me and you know everyone would be suing each other that seems like yeah you know what maybe maybe socrates and his you know his criticisms were kind of on to something at this point
1: (laughs) yeah i think it's one of those things where there's people go all right you're being ridiculous you've you've sued this guy 10 times and you lost nine times go away but for people who are like, "Hey, I'm really sick of Socrates. He's he's being a bit of a jerk, and I don't really, i really don't want to have to ever speak with him again." Oh, he's some old man, and maybe he doesn't really, he's not contributing as much to society anymore. What do I care if someone throws some charges against him and people maybe exactly. have a more indifferent yeah. view? So he he's eventually put up on trial, and he has the ability to defend himself. So against the allegations of corrupting the the youth, Socrates answers that he has never corrupted anyone intentionally. Since corrupting someone would carry the risk of being corrupted back in return and therefore would be like a, how does he describe this here? A, just like, it wouldn't be something that anybody would want to do because being corrupted is undesirable. So why would you Mm -hmm. do it? So he, again, is a very philosophical answer to something. It's like, I would never do that because then it would come back to me and that's a silly thing. But it's not providing evidence in the way we would see a legal system today saying well, I didn't do this and here's the proof to show it. It was more of, you wouldn't be able to go up into court today and say, well, m- well, my thoughts on this are I would never do it because I don't want it to happen to me. Um, it doesn't really work like that. But you know, I think for the time, it's definitely a noble effort. And then on the second charge, um, Socrates asks for clarification. What do you mean I'm you know, against the gods? And Melitus responds by repeating the accusation that Socrates is an atheist. Socrates notes that the contradiction between atheism and worshiping false gods. He claims that he is God's gift to the Athenians since his activities ultimately benefit the Athenians. Thus, in condemning him to death, Athens itself will be the greatest loser. After that, he says, <laughs> even though no human can reach wisdom, seeking it can be the best thing someone can do, implying money and prestige are not as precious as commonly thought. So you can't kill me. I love the gods because I'm their gift to you as people, which again, just I think sums up Socrates in such a perfect way of he is incredibly cocky about himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, look, you're on trial for your life here. You may want to come up with something a little bit better, but I think for him, he's he's an older man. He he sees the end coming soon anyways. He's going down swinging and, and he's not going to stop. So after this attempt to kind of free himself and kind of exonerate himself, he is convinced, convicted and sentenced to die. But it's not like a sweeping one way or the other, 280 jurors find him guilty while 220 found him innocent. So it was actually quite q- close. It wasn't uh, a unanimous decision. So Socrates asked for exile. like, just let me go sit in a home and somewhere and just give me some food and I'll live with my days. I won't good. bother yeah, anybody. Yeah. yeah. but. This was denied, and he was killed by being forced to drink hemlock, which is a a poisonous liquid, and was um, dead at the age of 71 in 3099 BC. So a really kind of sad ending to his life, but also something I think we can see where, you know, I keep reading here, he says, I'm God's gift to the Athenians. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, again, you you would love to have seen him live out to his life and have, you know, a nice kind of normal ending. But again, we wouldn't be talking about him today if he didn't stir the pot a little bit, if he was just a regular guy. Guy that was asking some questions. Um, I think socially, like definitely didn't have the skills that you need to A, survive. But I think it's, it's the inevitable end for someone who's so transformative to the world that he lives in. You're not going to be able to get away with this without so some scrapes and some bruises along the way and ultimately being sentenced to die at the age of 71. The fact that he even made it to 71, I still think is, inc- is a testament, that's right?
0: That's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. For yeah.
1: someone who doesn't uh, bathe uh, or have any personal hygiene too, you'd think you'd be sick all the time and stuff, but maybe, you know, they were built differently back then, I'm yeah. sure someone will say.
0: No, what a, what a remarkable end, right? And I think, not to pick on philosophers, but I think if you're into philosophy, you, you know, you, you definitely have some unique qualities about you. I've never met someone who spends time thinking about philosophy philosophy. philosophy who, you know, doesn't like having these very in-depth and grand discussions. And, you know, they're often willing to kind of push the envelope on, on certain things that, you know, most people who aren't into philosophy probably one don't consider two don't have the time for three are just not interested in uh and actually discussing but i think you know as you kind of get to the hour mark paul you know the one thing that really stuck sticks out to me about socrates and his trial and his life he almost becomes like you know it doesn't almost i think he he does become a martyr in a way right for, for sure. his students yeah. and the philosophical thought and school that he kind of creates for you know plato and aristotle you know i really see him as this kind of person who you know leads by example through his intellect through his moral courage obviously his influence on others you know it's hard not to be influenced by him because it seems like you know his his pragmatic and rational thinking is 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 almost magnetic in, in a certain way and his kind of focus on constant self-examination and challenging the status quo, you know, all all ideals that I, I value that I think are very, very important to, you know, to always kind of push the
1: envelope forward. And I think without him, someone else I'm sure would have figured this out at some point. But we yep. look at all the leaders throughout history, and even modern leaders too, of being able to break down concepts to their core problems and solve them in that way is pretty much the hallmark of any great leader. And so a for a thought legacy that's so important but the fact that when we look at societies that are at the peak of their of human civilization we think of the romans and then we think of the renaissance it all starts by studying the ancients and it all comes back to the greeks and it all comes back to socrates and plato and aristotle and all of these great thinkers because their ideas are i don't know if i would say the right ideas they're the hard ideas but maybe they are yeah. the the right ideas in that sense and we see you know, humanity slip into these areas in history where we kind of go after the easier thing where, hey, God is the only thing we need to worry about don't question anything. It's very safe. It's very easy on the mind, but it really doesn't progress anything. And that's why we have something like the dark ages. But when we come back and we think to that purely Socratic way of thinking, maybe not so much his social elements, but his Socratic level (laughs) of thinking, we're able to proceed as a society and we're able to progress. And again, I, I come back to, you know, is it a right, is it the right way to think? I think, is it, I don't think I can say that. I don't think anybody can, but I think the outcome of it is so strong that I think you can maybe make an argument that, yes, this is the best way to think, but it's very, very hard to do so. And you probably don't have the time to do so. So that's why many, many people struggle with it, including the two of us. So yeah, I think it's, it's a very, very fascinating end to his life and fascinating legacy that, you know, I don't know if there's anybody who's had more of an impact throughout history than that we've talked about than Socrates. I just as I'm speaking here, it's, you know, what part of society has he not touched in some way with his teaching? I don't think any any part has gone untouched. So yeah, big, a big props, I guess, to Socrates on, on being able to do what he did and, and be able to have this legacy that continued to be worked on and, grow, and ideas that were built upon to get us to where we are today. And to think, you know, the world that we are able to live in today is really kind of comes back to a lot of those thoughts and, you know, evolved over 2000 plus years.
0: Yeah, I think when people kind of give him credit for being the the father of, of, of Western philosophy, I think it's a very apt title. <laughs> I, I, I for think sure. there is uh, no one more deserving of that kind of label than he is, just because of how deeply embedded his, his thoughts, his works are still kind of discussed today, and how it laid the foundation of, you know, what was to come with Plato and Aristotle after the fact. And what, you know, what those three kind of giants did, for for western philosophy you know i think like every philosophy course that you take you know you know in post grad is going to start with these three at some point like you can't get around it and i think you know it really is a credit to socrates's work and i think you know if we're looking at like leadership and decision making geez i yeah, Here he, <laughs> yeah. he, 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 he is someone who knew exactly how he was going to make decisions because it was so deeply embedded in his uh, in, in his morals and integrities and you know his virtues that he would kind of always be aligned with and move forward with and I think it's just a testament to his character
1: for sure. I think you you hit the nail on the head with you know when it comes to leadership and decision making and you know the legacy that he leaves. Everybody probably wants to follow this. It's just the practicality of it is where people yeah. struggle, right? It's like yes, 100%. I would love to break down every single thing, decision that I make into (laughs) its true root cause and go through a, a proper analysis. And if you're able to do that, you know, Hey, hats off to you. But I think, yeah, that's the the challenge that I think we see all leaders face is I want to break things down, but I just, you know, I don't have the time to do so. Or my body just physically, my mind physically can't take exactly. it anymore. I just want a simple answer to something. And sometimes time is of the essence. And we see that with leaders all the time, right? Where we look at, you know, invading armies rolling up. I don't have time to spend two weeks breaking down my decision into, you know, deep, complex ideas to see what the yeah. right decision is. Because as if I don't do something in the next 20 minutes, there's going to be cannonballs or Catapults flying over my uh over my walls of my city, so it's a it's a great way to think if you have the ability to do so. And I think for great leaders, it's finding. I think it was now that I'm thinking about it. I think it was Eisenhower had that matrix where it was like things I need to think deeply about, right, I, versus I use things it I can every just. Day. So- yeah, yeah. The
0: Eisenhower. It's like important, not important, uh, urgent, not urgent. And it's right. a four quadrant matrix. I use it every morning in my journal to make sure like I know exactly what's a priority for that day. Right. Yeah, it's, it is is such a great, simple, easy framework to use.
1: I see. Okay. Yeah. And I think yeah. it falls perfectly into this, right? You have yep. that balance between there's certain important things that I need to think deeply about. And I can't get this decision wrong. But then there's yep. certain things where it's like there's a few just, few ways I can go. Time is of the essence. I just got to make a decision and get us moving forward. Exactly. And yep. we see that with leaders all throughout history, especially generals too. Like I got to move this army over here, this army over there, or I got to sound the alarm for a retreat. I don't have time to sit and think through things deeply. But if I'm Napoleon and I'm doing, you know, my grand strategy on how to destroy the Austrians, you know, yeah, yeah take, take, take a few weeks, think through yeah. it, break it down and make sure you come to the right decision. Cause if you mess this up, many, many people are going to die, including yourself. So yeah. yeah, I think it is really the bedrock of a lot of decision making that all the leaders we talked about have come come into touch with one way or another.
0: Yep, totally agree. Awesome. All right. I think
1: that's a great place to end. And um, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the History in Motion podcast. If you enjoyed our journey through time, please subscribe, rate us, and share the podcast with friends. Your support helps keep history alive. Until next time.